Bob, thanks for meeting. Yeah, you said good to see you. Great, great. So, uh, you know, we're going to dive a little bit on uh, the hat that you've wore for more than 15 years, which is the wine buyer hat. You know, I really want to bring value for other wine buyers here, and there is no better person than you. I mean, I've, I really admire what you do, and I just want to uh, know, you know, how that role, you know, really, uh, what that includes, and uh, you know, how people can perform better at that role. So why don't you please uh, tell me more about your experience and what all things you've done and where all you work, please? So actually, said I've been in buyer roles for more than 30 years, wow. and, and that covers independent. I own my own store for a lot of years. Old school model, you know, brick and mortar, dinosaur model, knowing every person that comes in the door, hand selling, all of that. Uh, I did that for 16 years, and. After that, I went into the corporate side, and uh, I've spent time with large companies, uh, Walmart, Southeastern Grocers, Kohl's, which is a very large retailer in Australia, and uh, Bevmo on the West Coast as well. So I've worked in independent retail, in the club channel, in grocery, in specialty retail, and then also some in the international side as well. Fantastic. And uh, the names are like Sam's Club, right? You were there. Uh, you were there at Bevmo. Uh, mm -hmm. You were there at Coles. You said. So let's let's start with uh, you know just a difference between working in a independent, which you've done at the beginning of your career, versus just going in a corporate role. You know what what sort of differences yeah. you saw? Oh, I mean, it, the, well, the difference is is tremendous. You know, when you're an independent retailer, everything about making that business operate falls on, on you and, and you know, maybe a small staff of people. So everything is very, very hands-on. You know, every detail, whether it's you're buying wine the way the store is laid out, your pricing policy, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, your interaction in terms of, of marketing and, and all of that. So you're responsible for everything from A to Z. Uh, for me, I think that was really a good learning ground because mm -hmm. it gave me a perspective of every aspect of the business mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah in terms of, of learning that was was tremendous and prior to owning uh, a store for 16 years I worked in a, uh, a retail store a, a nice wine shop for about five years so that was really a, a bit of a training ground mm -hmm. that led me into owning my own store going into the corporate world entirely different gig mm -hmm. I mean at that point uh, you're you have a distance from from the people who are actually buying the wine, buying the product. Uh, you know, you're sitting in an office and you're you've got a spreadsheet in front of you. You've got a P and L, and typically for for buyers in, in that type of role, you're going to have objectives, targets to hit uh, in terms of profits, in terms of sales, market share. You know, the the numbers can vary based on whatever yep. the company prioritizes, but essentially you've got numbers to hit. And, and are those numbers like yearly, quarterly, usually? What kind of objectives you know, are there and the time zones we're looking at? Like, uh, I mean, it rolls up to whatever the fiscal year may be. But within that fiscal year, okay. uh, the company is going to break it down according to quarters or it could be periods. Mm -hmm. You might, uh, I mean, what very common was having 13 four-week periods. Okay. And each one of those periods, you would have some sort of planning in terms of, here's how we're going to hit our numbers. All right. And, you know, it may be a natural ebb and flow of, of, 
traffic. You, yeah. you get in the Q4, you get a lift, people are buying a lot more. Uh, there's seasonality with, with some holidays like you know, Easter or Valentine's Day, that sort of thing. So you laid out your, your plan based on what was happening in each one of those periods. What are that numbers? Like approximately 20% uh, every year is a minimum requirement at sort of a corporate level uh, for top line and 20% profits? The, or? There, there's, there's, there is no hard and fast rule on this. Okay. So if you have a business that is uh, relatively young or if it's coming out of some sort of turnaround, mm -hmm. oftentimes that business is at kind of a lower point. Okay. The growth potential for the next year or two typically is going to be quite good if you play so your like cards So like for a new right. store, if there's a new location, it's very different versus you stepping into some old location of Sam's Club, for example. Yeah, if you have a, a business that, that's mature, uh, it's going to be harder to get so let me double-digit double digit growth. Uh, your job, who do you report to? Let's, let's start there. Who would you report to when you were a corporate buyer of SAMS? It, generally, what will happen in, in each of the corporate environments is you will have someone who, uh, who oversees a larger department. Okay. Okay. So in, in a place like, like SAMS, it may be an individual who oversees a lot of the consumables. Okay. In a grocery store. There's typically going to be someone who is, uh, call it a director, a VP, whatever it, term they use. But it might be someone who oversees center store. Here's another individual like that food, oversees. Like food, beauty, beverages, whatever, that kind of group. Yeah, an yeah. Example. And then you would say, all right, you know, John, uh, here's my report for this 90 days. Sales up 20%. Profits, you know, contribution is 28%. I think we are on track. And then you just review every... In a sense. What was the pressure? In a sense. Like? You know, what was oh, it, it's crazy. It's crazy because if you're, if you're hitting your numbers as the year progresses, okay, now you're feeling you know, some of that pressure is laying off. If you're not, well, then the pressure just compounds as you mm. go down the road because, again, you're tasked to hit a, a specific target. Uh, the other things that are looked at is, I mean, obviously, you're looking at sales and profit margin. Yes, uh, market share is oftentimes a, a big consideration. Meaning number of consumers? Yeah. So, is so that defined as market share? If you're a, a large retailer, you're working for a, a grocery chain, let's say, uh, what percentage of the total market do you capture? Wow. So, you know, if you're 2% of the market, your goal may be for the next year to grow that to 2.2%. So you're talking nationally now? once or how or regionally like it depends it depends on what the business is if it's a national business you look at the national number if it's regional you look at the region for instance at data. southeast grocers it was all based on the southeast part of the u.s so market share oftentimes will be a, a conversation the other th the other thing that comes up oftentimes is turns is turns okay what is that so for instance if you had a, a million dollars in inventory Oh, turnout. And you turn that inventory four times a year. Got it. Okay, that's four turns. It, within a grocery store and within many very, very large retail stores, you're looking at maybe four or five turns a year of the inventory. Okay. Now, as an independent retailer, when I had my own store, I was about 10 to 12 times a year. That's good. So, you know, that's, that, that's a really quick, efficient turn. Yeah. And, and with that, the other part you look at is, well, okay, if I'm turning my, my inventory four times a year, yeah. 
you keep your eye on the inventory that is not moving. Yep. Okay, because that that provides two potential liabilities. One is it's unproductive money, it's taking space on a shelf, on an end cap, wherever, that's unproductive. And eventually it's gonna be distressed goods. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to be selling Italian Pinot Grigio that's four years old. Mm-hmm. So managing that is is also very important. So there's a lot of aspects that yeah. are that How are do moving. you manage uh, inventory, dead inventory or slow moving products? What were the things you did? Well, you know, before it becomes distressed goods, you look at putting it on some sort of promotion to blow it out. Uh, in some cases, uh, in many places in the U.S., scan money is used. You may go back to a supplier and say, look, I really need help moving this item out. They may provide a you know, some, some money per unit sold, and that in turn helps you to fund the promotion. Mm-hmm. So it helps to keep you whole in terms of your, your margins, mm-hmm. and that supplier then pull, plays a role of supporting you, and then in turn you may say, look, when I blow this out, I'll bring another new item in, that'll be yours. Got it, so most of the time I'm assuming that is part of the uh, thing that supplier needs to sign on when they're signing or dealing with big chains like it's a requirement like if these things don't move i expect you to help me out and so on like or oftentimes okay. oftentimes yes okay yeah oftentimes the answer to that is yes you know it's tough to, to speak in really broad terms like this because there always are going to be exceptions got it yeah uh the other aspect that i looked at that was a, a massive massive driver was developing private label mm-hmm. and if you look around the world Private label is very significant in some places. You mm-hmm. go in the UK, you go into a Tesco, Sainsbury, you know, over half Absolutely, of what they yeah. sell is, is their own brand. Mm-hmm. Going to a Marks and Spencer, it's almost everything. Okay, so here in the US, private label has lacked in terms of development. The last few years, it's really taken off. Mm-hmm. And back when I first got into the business, uh, you know, this is back like in the you know, Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. So this is a long time ago. Private label was generally the opening price point. It was sold yes. based on price yeah. and it was the cheap entry point into the market. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's changed. Yeah. That's changed radically now. Mm-hmm. You'll find private label at all different price yeah. points. You can find private label Barolo and Champagne and all yeah, kinds I've of heard uh, Costco has nice 18 year whiskey, which is. Like, yeah, hot cakes, right? As yeah. Well. So yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get Costco's vodka. That that's been a rock star for yeah. years. So there's plenty of examples out there where where it works. Yeah. Um, and now there's a lot of companies that are set up specifically yeah. to create private label. So back to that KPIs, let's say the, the indicators, right? Which you said market share, turnout, profit margin contributor, you mm-hmm. know, and so let's say there is a yellow tail which can be like for foot traffic and then there is private label for margins and then there is this brand for that so when you're buying is there like a category which you assign your portfolio and design it that this is meant for this this is meant for this and then you measure based on that particular that this was meant for a foot traffic but it's not doing so bye-bye or how how Uh, to a large extent yes You, you start to segment out your assortment okay and you have items that are, uh, I always call these hard brands. These are the brands that are everywhere. You use the yellowtail example, but it could be that. It could be, 
you know, Sutter Home, yep. Franzia, that whatever the the brands you find everywhere. Correct. Those generally are, to a large degree, almost treated like commodities. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're sold on price. You run a promotion. You're a buck less than the guy down the street. You get a bump in sales. As soon as that promotion is done, that consumer then is shifting to whatever else is on promotion next. How did you, you know, turn Yellowtail to a private label? Let's say which was more profit contribution. Okay, so if you had if you had something like like Yellowtail, mm -hmm. okay, that was a big driver and it was like a, a commodity type of item. If you created a a comparable product. Pro mm -hmm. comparable price point, mm -hmm. that wine is actually specced out based on Yellowtail. Correct. So what I would do is, if, let's say it's Yellowtail Chardonnay, I'm going to vet out a number of potential business partners. These are wineries that can mm -hmm. have the ability to produce that type of wine in the volumes that are needed, and they provide cost stability. Got it. The worst thing you want to do is get behind something and push it, and all of a sudden next year your cogs go up 20% and you're not competitive. Yeah. So there was a vetting process that played out. Mm -hmm. And then once you've determined uh, that you, you have that specific item that can compete against something like Yellowtail, then there was a package design. Okay, that package design would generally be a few different concepts. You take a focus group, you run it by these people and say, what's your reaction to this? So you're getting some sort of feedback that, that's real. And uh, so, you know, if you had a, a, an item, let's say the, the bulk of the business was a 25 to 40 year old female shopper, mm -hmm. that's what you'd want in your focus group as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're trying to get some data that's relevant so you can make the change from mm -hmm. that hard brand to, to, your, to your soft brand or a private label. And in the store placements, tactics, what did you use? Like you just put that particular private label next to Yellowtail uh, and hoped for the best? Or and also the, the store staff for hand selling? Or what were the tactics behind pushing that alternative? So yeah, lots of tactics on this. One is it would be positioned on the shelf next mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. uh, with some sort of shelf talker or some sort of call out that would help bring attention to it. You can get a third party review, some sort of mm -hmm. review that, that that's good. That always helps. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be something that you're running on promotion on a regular cadence. It has a spot on an end cap, floor stacks, that sort of thing. You know, if you're into using, uh, you know, in-store tasting events, you really mm -hmm. feature those items. You play them up like you own them, which you do. And, uh, you know, they need the full brand building exercise. So, yeah. you know, you think of marketing, you know, what, what's the P's? What is it? Product, placement, Product, promotion. Placement, packaging and all that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's not rocket science, yeah, but yeah. you tick all those boxes and then you position yourself in a way where odds are you're going to have success because you've done your due diligence. And some things go wrong. You never know. What can go wrong, you know, in, in the task, you know, uh, where you think uh, I could have done this better? I mean, you absolutely know this could have been done better. Like, what are the things that buyers can not do to, you know? I think one thing that is, is a recipe for disaster, if you're buying based on your own preference, okay, because you're not the target audience. But most would not have the resources sometimes, you know, to listen to the end consumers or how it's just going to be on the gut end of the day. 
How, no, no. how can we narrow that down? How can well, they listen? But you, there, there's all sorts of trade data. I mean, you can take a look at you know, Nielsen numbers and that, get that sort of data. You can see what's trending up. You look at those items that are trending up and sometimes you'll find a commonality there Got where you know, here's a particular style that, or a particular place of origin that, that's really working well. Yeah. So you know, you, you're trying to eliminate the, the risk factor as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking through all those pieces, and then at the end you do have some sort of focus group, mm -hmm. okay, you've done all your due diligence, you know, at some point you take a leap of faith, but you've done your homework. Mm -hmm. What other things uh, you think that commonly make mistakes or should not do? Uh, well, as I mentioned, buying to your own preference is, is really a, a, bad, a bad recipe. You know, you've got to think from the perspective of what that, that customer is looking for. Mm -hmm. And the other is if you're looking at wines from various regions, let's mm -hmm. say you're, you're talking, uh, you know, it's a Napa Valley Cabernet or it's a Barbaresco from Piemonte. What I've always tried to do is, is to focus on those wines that are true to that place of origin. Mm -hmm. So this way, anyone who's coming in and shopping your, your assortment, they pick something up. They may not know what it is, but it's a good representation of the place that it's from. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that may sound like an overly... No, I understand. They're not surprised. The tipicity has to be there, so that way the store right. credibility is not at place. You know, because 100%. it's like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc should absolutely taste like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, at least, you know. Uh, so they know that you recommended or placed the right thing, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You don't want someone to come in and spend... $20 on something and think, this is not, not what that, I expected yeah. at all. Yeah. Okay, that, that's generally going to be a bad experience. Let's go on uh, other uh, tactical stuff like staff training, right? You have this new brand, you know, what is that 20 minute session you would call all your wine reps, you know, in the mm. store and talk about like, this is how you talk about this product and what to do and what not. How can they improve? Yeah, so look, every, every business has their own approach to how they roll out new items. Uh, you know, some of them it may be, you may have some sort of email blast that goes out and here's the story. Okay. You know, some actually have training sessions where, you know, you need to read about the wine, you check a box, you've actually There's done... There's a Q&A, you ask questions and you see whether the yeah. person's knowledgeable or not. That, that's actually the best that I've seen when that sort of thing happens. It's pretty rare. And, and if you think about it in the context of if you're in a, a club store or in a grocery store, for instance, there's tens of thousands of items there. Yeah. And you, know, you roll out five new wines. I mean, it's, it amounts to about two grains of sand on the beach in do the you, picture. Do you guys do like something like, okay, guys, this week we go to sell more wine. Let's like, is there like real salesy approach to that? In some cases, yes. Okay. In some cases, but again, it's all specific to to the company. To the company. So yeah, uh, maybe I'm incorrect, but till my observations, I love Total Wine. You know the way they hand sell. Like mm -hmm. that's one of the best stores I've seen where mm -hmm. like service, sales, everything just falls in place mm -hmm. uh, very nicely. So uh, what is based on your experiences? Which stores did like or which exact things you think were so good? You think this absolutely because of this sales went up well i think the total model is is i think you're spot on mm -hmm. i mean they do a great job there's there's specific training for for the people that work there 
most of their stores actually have a, a room designated for learning, for okay. tasting. So, I mean, they've, they've owned that. And I think part of the reason for that is you have a massive selection of wine. Yeah. And you have a lot of wines there that are exclusive to them. Correct. So, you know, feeding that, that, that information stream yeah. is critically important there because they're selling what I would call as a lot of soft brands. Yeah. Okay. They're not out there and marketed broadly, you know, like... Brands that need education or a little storytelling, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the other piece that I've always found with, with wine, you know, wine is one of those things, there's a strong emotive link. People have traveled to places, you know, like soon I'm, I'm taking a trip to Spain. Mm-hmm. Okay, you go there, you have a nice experience, you have an emotive link to that place. Okay, it's, it's different. It's not the same if you're buying, you know, toilet paper or cat, well, maybe cat food. I don't know, maybe people are emotional about that. Mm-hmm. But wine is something that, Usually, it's associated with a good experience. Mm-hmm. And if you've been to some of these places where wines are produced, there's a familiarity and comfort with it. And oftentimes, people will go back to those again and again. Yeah. So uh, the emotive link is, is really important. Really, really, yeah, it's really important. So that brings me back to the person who has some background and studied and you know, things of that nature. How did Master of Wine change... Uh, when you knock door of Sam's or Applied uh, or Bevmore, you know, versus someone who doesn't have that, you know, do you get preferential? Uh, let, okay, Bob, you were first. Or I'll tell you, uh, passing the Master of Wine, I passed in 2002. Uh, I sold my business in 2002. So that's when I made the, the change. That meant everything. I mean, it opened up a lot of doors. It gave instant credibility. Uh, it helped in ways that I can't even express. And it still does to And it helped day. in functioning your role as well in, in the business, I yeah, believe. It, it, absolutely. More than the career, right? Like well, performing better at your job? I think, I think both. Because okay. going through the MW program, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very challenging and it really puts you through the, the ringer. It forces you to think of things in ways that maybe you hadn't before and understand that solutions are not always cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's different ways that you can have a successful outcome. And uh, I think in that regard, it gave me much more perspective in thinking laterally, if mm-hmm. that's the correct term. Uh, so it helped in that regard in terms of everyday business approach. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, though, it did provide instant credibility with the supplier world and you know, yes. You're meeting with people for a first time. Oh, this guy's an MW, and yeah. okay, fine. You know, you can use that to your advantage. Uh, but there's all kinds of education programs out there now. You know, the WSCT and, yes. and you know, loads of others. Having some sort of credential, I, I think, is a plus. What's your favorite uh, work execution that you can remember that this was pulled off, and you were very proud of it, and you tactically, strategically? Did it walk me over a little detail, please? Uh, I think probably, probably my time working for Southeastern Grocers. Okay. Uh, when I went there, uh, the company was just a few years uh, from coming out of bankruptcy. 
and they were trying to reinvent themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a fantastic manager there, mm -hmm. and uh, he really gave me free run to do whatever I felt was needed to, to get the business on the right path. Mm -hmm. But what I discovered uh, very early on was there was a massive amount of dead inventory. Mm -hmm. So you had a small core of items that turned really well, and you had a lot of other items that just were not productive. Well, that's a lot of money sitting on a shelf. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a grocery store, for instance, the, the largest inventory investment in a grocery store generally is going to be beverage alcohol. It's right up there. Pharmacy is going to be very high and fresh meat. In terms of dollars per square foot, Understood. Yeah. it's typically the pharmacy, uh, you know, because again, you know, very yeah. compact. Got it. But beverage alcohol is a massive investment mm -hmm. and managing that inventory mm -hmm. uh, was something that I really focused on. So it was, let's eliminate the, the dead wood, let's get rid of this. And we did it in a very systematic way over a long period of time. It's not like we could mark everything down and, and just mm -hmm. blow it out because you, you crater your numbers if mm -hmm. you did that. Mm -hmm. So it was done in a very staged sort of uh, approach. And then it was a matter of let's fill these gaps with items that are relevant to the customers today. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the data. Uh, the other thing I did at that point was the stores were clustered. Mm -hmm. So there were certain demographics that were, were common among certain stores. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have more affluent area. You know, you might have areas that have more retirees or whatever it may be. Their buying patterns had some common element, and you could group those together. Interesting, yeah. So the assortment for... I always thought about cheese and like the products, but never the people can be different areas as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Asian. I mean, look, you're not going to load up a, a store that is kind of a grab-and-go, quick, convenient sort of outlet. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to load that So you that studied up. that, and then you reverse-engineered the merchandise. Absolutely. And because my thought was what that provided is a much higher degree of assurance that we wouldn't fall back into having a lot of dead inventory. Mm -hmm. We've got the right items in the right store. And uh, granted, this is painting with kind of a broad brush. You know, it's mm. not like you can be down to every specific mm -hmm. item. But directionally speaking, it made a huge difference in the business. On challenges of the buyer, uh, you know, one of the things is the buying process, right? Or the buying philosophy one thing you said was don't be personal you know buy according to your preferences but if there was a 10 point checklist that do this 10 things you know as if you were hiring some young buyer you would just coach and tell okay stick to the plan this is what you do what those 10 things would look like you know you want 10 things for me <laughs> yeah yeah for, for my suppliers okay. I, I don't know if i can rattle off 10 but in terms of of new buyers that are coming into uh into a role uh, a few things that I would look at. One is uh, look at what's worked historically. It's not like everything needs to be reinvented. Okay. Okay. So if you have and you should have some sales history, you can track what has worked over a period of a number of years, Understood. ideally. You're looking at price points. You're looking at styles. You know, you're looking at all of these components that, that make wines different from one another. Well, there's groupings of that as well. Yes. So finding that is, is I'd say, a good starting point because that's going to form the basis of your business. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
Then what I would look at is uh, take a look at what the growth segments are. Mm -hmm. And what I've always done in the past, I think of the 30 plus years, for me what I found was oftentimes what was happening in the UK was a couple years later you were going to find it here in the States. I've noticed that, yeah. In a couple years after that, you're going to find it in Australia. In Australia. <laughs> okay. So, so, and I'll give you loads of examples of that. I think of years ago when... Uh, Muscato had yep. its day in the sun. Okay, you saw that in the UK before you saw it here in the States. The same thing would be true of Melbeck. Yeah. Okay, you know, you think of rosé. And I have one example, low alcohol Bev. Same thing, UK yeah. first, and now it's going to come here. Absolutely, yeah. No alcohol, low alcohol. Rosé is another one. Yeah. You know, I mean, you think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been around long enough in this business, I can remember when rosé had its day in the sun almost 40 years ago. Yep. And then, you know, what Zinfandel came on the scene and kind of dumbed the whole category down and it really kind of tainted what it what it was perceived at. Well, it's back again. Yeah. Okay. And again, it, it's different than what it was, but as a category, Correct, yeah. it's back. So I would take a look at what is like those niche categories that are small and showing great potential. Yes. So for me, one thing that I look at right now that I think I think it is going to be a really interesting niche is Cab Franc. Okay, mm -hmm. so you look at Cab Franc, there is amazing Cab Franc coming out of Argentina But right what now. else did you look at? How? Uh, what, what consumer side is telling you that that's picking up? Well, you can find it. You can find it in some of the data, and you can also, in, in the work I do today, I'm talking to uh, wine producers in Argentina, and all they're telling me is, the, the call on Cabernet Franc is exploded. So, you know, it makes me think there's something there. It's kind of like when there's smoke, yeah. there, there's some when there fire. was Malbec movement, for example, you could see it, that demand is happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the examples that I'm trying, I think the wines are amazing, and I think there could be a really cool story there. Uh, so I would look at what are those developing niches. Another point that I think is, is really important is who you're partnering with. Supplier? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so with that, uh, look, you're going to have a, a handful of suppliers that are going to have a broad range of items. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to you're going to work with a, a Gallo or Delicato. Sure. You know, people like this. They've got a broad portfolio. Th they're important to the core of your business. Okay. Those are oftentimes SKUs that you need to kind of build the foundation. Um, Partnering with suppliers that have some innovation, some things that are kind of cool and different. Mm -hmm. And again, it depends on, on the type of format you're in. Mm -hmm. But if you want to have something that really is trend correct mm -hmm. and not just kind of stagnant, mm -hmm. finding these suppliers that have items that are different. Mm -hmm. And in the wine industry has been notorious for being very slow on innovation. Yeah, That's really changed the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's not like... I mean, spirits are a lot more innovative than, mm -hmm. than wine. But there's things happening with, I mean, you look at the explosion of, you know, can, Cans, for instance. Even, I think they're moving towards sustainability things as well. Absolutely. You know, you see a lot of movement, too, on uh, much more premium box wines. Yep. Uh, and the other point you brought up yep. is this eco-friendly piece. Mm -hmm. This is not some bullshit. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's substance to this. Mm -hmm. And looking at uh, maybe not so much biodynamic, but certainly organic uh, 
vegan friendly, mm -hmm. wines made with no enzymes, mm -hmm. you know, some places maybe you're talking indigenous yeast, mm -hmm. wineries that are playing up the aspect of, uh, you know, recycling, renewable mm -hmm. resources, you know, solar, all of these things are becoming more and more part of our daily life. Mm -hmm. So don't think that wine is somehow unique yes. in, in that regard. It's something that people are valuing more in terms of their purchase of everyday consumer items. Mm -hmm. So it's just a natural fit with, with wine as well. Uh, so that would be another thing I would look at. Mm -hmm. The other is uh, having a really vibrant, relevant private label program. Okay. Okay, so private label provides some, some really strong benefits. If you do this right, it's certainly a margin driver because I mean, you don't have competitors selling that same item. Uh, the, the consumer really doesn't know what the value of that item is, so you've got more leeway in terms of, of margin dollars there. Those margin dollars can often help if you've got dead inventory that you need to move out. So you're taking a smaller margin here, you're taking a larger margin, and then it all washes out. The other thing is with private label, doing it right, it provides a different uh, point of differentiation. Mm -hmm. You have something unique and different. Someone comes in, they have a good experience with it. You've got them. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're the only game in town that has it. Mm -hmm. It also can be a good leverage point against big suppliers. So True. if you have a viable, uh, viable options in private label, it may somewhat diminish the need for a lot of these hard brands. Mm -hmm. It puts you in a better position to say, look, you want me to work with this? I need something I need more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It gives you something to play hardball with. Got it. Yeah. And a uh, couple more points on how to be a better buyer. You're, you're, you gave great you know, well, things there. Look, keep in mind, you know, being a better buyer, uh, all of it has to do with hitting numbers on a, on a P&L. Got it. So, what questions would you ask a brand? You know, as a buyer, when you're talking, let's say I'm a supplier and you're a buyer, what kind of things you would ask personally, you know, if you were wearing, let's say, Bevmo or any big chain buyer hat? Yeah, if there's a few things that could be asked. Uh, if it's a new item that's being introduced, you may ask for an exclusive on it for a period of time. Okay. I will get behind this item, but in return... I'm looking for 90 days exclusive. Got it. Okay, so you've got this supplier that's out there. They're doing some advertising. They're showing the wine in trade shows. They're getting the word out there. They're doing their social media thing. Hey. But you do ask them that, hey, I need a billboard outside BevMo that says now available in BevMo. Those kind of things happen? That, that does. Yeah, okay. that does happen. It does. Okay. Uh, in today's world, I would put more emphasis on social media. Okay. Okay. Attention, basically. You do ask them to create attention for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, want, you want brand awareness. So but specifically, like now in Total Wine or Bevmo or whatever it is, it's, you are asking them for foot traffic, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And in turn, look, you've got to understand from the supplier perspective, mm -hmm. over and over what they're looking for is points of distribution. Okay. So mm -hmm. for a brand to be successful... And I'm talking a brand that's made in significant volume. Correct. It needs to be in a lot of places. Got it. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so you being on the buyer end, mm -hmm. you've got some sort of leverage point on that. If you're, because you're giving them the places and they want that. 
like a lot of outlets, right? Exactly. So, for instance, I mean, when I was with Southeastern Grocer, at that time, I think they had something like five or six hundred stores. So yeah. if it's an item that is relevant for all clusters, to go to a supplier and say, look, I will give you this many points of distribution, Yeah, that's a lot. Yes. Okay, that's a lot. Now, if it's a smaller supplier and it's something that's more premium, maybe that wine's only relevant in 100 locations. But in the context of that supplier, yeah. that's still important. Absolutely understood. Yeah. So, uh, exclusivity is one good thing to start off. Then, uh, more like rack programs or any other yeah. tactical? Stuff? Yeah, you, you might say, look, in order for me to, to get behind this, I'm going to need promotional funding four times a year. Understood. Okay. And you know, then will you build out a calendar? And I mean, in every role that I've had as a buyer, or if I've had buyers that reported to me, you have a calendar laid out of on this week. This is what you're going to promote. Okay. And you look at things in terms of having a product mix where you're, you know, you're, you're kind of ticking all the boxes. Yes. You, you don't want it too narrowly focused, and you keep things in mind like seasonality. Okay. Okay. You know, you're going into springtime. Look, that's the time to really hit rosé hard. You know, so it's really so much of an analytic job, more than that's uh, all it is, right? Yeah. And that brings me to ask personally. I wanted to always know this. Like uh, sometimes when I approach, you know, uh, or buyers for our competitions, and all that, I've noticed some young person, pure finance background, nothing to do with wine. You know. Uh, mm. Elaborate on that. I mean, I would say, yeah, that, maybe that's swinging the pendulum too far the other way. It, it's dangerous if you have too much Data. invested in what you're buying. Okay, it's not it, the way I've always looked at things is when I'm in a buyer role, I think of it in terms of if this were my money, would I be spending this? And if you really need to think about it, and you think, God, I'm taking a risk on this that's unnecessary, probably shouldn't do it. But what my point is, it's just 100% data technically, right? Like you just have to be so much non-emotional about things at the corporate level. It will, you will be forced down for sure if you're not able to prove your boss that this brand will contribute this way with data instead of, I think this will do because it tastes amazing, you know? Okay, so, so you're touching on a point that, that's really become a hot topic in the supplier world in recent years. And that is how many buyers are uber conservative and protective. Okay, they're very risk adverse because you, you, take a bad, you take a bad buy, okay, you can rebound from that typically. You make a bad buy on top of a bad buy on top of a bad buy, you start to compound it, all of a sudden you're buying yourself a lot of liability. Yeah. Okay, I, I've always had maybe a bit more risk tolerance, but it's always with due diligence. Yeah. Okay. I've done my homework. I believe this will succeed for all of these reasons. And sometimes things don't. But typically, if you're doing your homework, you've got the right price point. You've got the right packaging. Yeah. The wine quality is right for the price. I mean, you're ticking all the things. Yeah. Usually, you're going to be in a good place. It's the discipline to stay by the books, pretty much. You know, just do what has to be done. And don't be making rogue purchases. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's a here's a person I I really like, and I'm going to invest something in this. That that's a recipe for disaster. So give me one story about an actual interview 
you know, let's say, what did Southeastern or BevMo ask you? What kind of questions, what kind of qualifications they were looking for their corporate buyer? Uh, okay, so I recall with Southeastern Grocers, now at this point I had been a master of wine, I think I started there in 09, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So it was just after the recession. So here's a company that's on the rebound and they're building, trying to build their their business back up. Uh, I remember the person that I interviewed who was actually who I reported to. He had a lot of questions about how I approach everyday business. There was not a lot of conversation around wine, or you call it the product, or what we were selling. Interesting. It was more of how would you manage the business. And, and what he said to me afterwards was, he said, look, he said, you know, I knew you're, you're an MW, you're one of these wine geek people. I, I'm not concerned about your knowledge about wine itself. Look, this is a business and you're, you know, you're one brick in the wall and you, know, you need to be a solid brick. So how do you approach the business? And you know, it's a lot of what we've discussed. It's a lot of nuts and bolts of Got managing it. a P&L. Managing people? Of course, managing people and understanding that you pull a lever, all kinds of things start to go into motion. Yeah. You know, so you run some sort of price promotion and you get a nice bump in sales. Mm. Okay, well, did that bump in sales actually provide more profit? More sales with less profits, not a good combination. Hmm. You run a promotion, you've actually, uh, maybe you've decreased the margin dollars a bit, you know, the margin percentage that is, but the overall margin dollars were a net gain, mm -hmm. that's a win. Now keep in mind, next year, you need to anniversary that. Mm -hmm. So what are you gonna do next year to, to continue that, that forward progress? So you, you're always thinking well in advance of, okay, these are things that worked for me in the past. Yeah. These are things that I'm seeing out in the marketplace that maybe I can do that I'm not. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you happen to be at a trade show or somewhere where you're getting more of a, a global perspective, yeah. sometimes you can find something that's working in a different country. I think we could do that as well. Got it. So, I mean, it's being nimble and always having it clear in your head you don't always have all the answers. Yeah. Any mm -hmm. other questions you remember, uh, which can help people you know who are getting interviewed by some chain buyers? Look, if you're being interviewed for, for those types of roles, having the ability to manage a P&L is going to be by far the most important thing. The next thing I would say is you're like an advocate for, for whatever category you're in. So, you know, oftentimes in these corporate settings, there's going to be sales meetings. There's going to be occasions Understood. where you're going to get up in front of a group of people. Some of these people may be interested in what you're doing. Some of them, they're really not. Mm -hmm. But telling the story that proves that you're relevant to the fuller business, mm -hmm. it's, it's always important. You've got to be like that, that flag bearer that's always telling the story of... True. Here's what we're doing. It's helping to drive a larger basket in our stores. I mean, got it. But again, a lot of it's data driven. Yeah. But putting yourself out there and telling the story, yeah, it's it's important. Fantastic. Anything else you would want to add uh, as a final tip? Uh, look, I think the other thing is just uh, you don't always know everything, mm. and and the wine business is very fluid. 
there's always things that are changing. You know, there, there's fads, things come and go. There's other things that are relatively stable. Mm -hmm. And being aware of all the moving pieces, it's always going to be a benefit to you. Which were the good, sorry, uh, one more popped because of this. Which were the three or four good uh, magazines or newsletters you consumed to keep up in the loop, you know, for the global sort of, or even US, let's say? Well, I mean, magazine, I've always been a big fan of, okay. of Decanter. I've always liked it. Uh, I think it's fair open-minded sort of, of wine journalism. Okay. So I think they do a very good job. Uh, I mean, something like even like Wine Business Monthly, yeah. you know, because that gives you more of, more of like a business approach versus the consumer approach. What about the consumer side of the things, uh, data, like Nielsen reports and those kind of things did you use to consume as well? Or general- Like crazy. Like cheese sales are up and then now let me play with cheese. Uh, the, the Nielsen data or, or alike is really important. Okay. The only thing with that, though, it's a little bit like driving, looking in the rearview mirror. Mm. Okay? It's happened now, yeah. Yeah, it's happened. So if it's something that is shown like a big spike, and that spike yeah. now is starting to decrease, yeah. okay? Like it's, you're, yeah, it's like, let's just not reorder this. It can help you eliminate the error. Right, you're anticipating that yeah, that's yeah. something like you're seeing this now with with seltzers. That's a great thing to actually think about, yeah. So not to make sure you're not repeating that at the downturn. And and then to to counter that is you may have other smaller categories that are just consistently ticking up. Yeah. And and when you build out your assortment Typically, you're looking for like a balanced assortment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've got a category that, that's growing. I have five SKUs dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should have 10. And then whatever is, is maybe a category that, that's contracting or mm -hmm. one that, that, that's slowing, showing a lot of slowdown in mm -hmm. growth, that may be something where, okay, I'm gonna take five SKUs that's going here and I'm gonna take it from this other category that is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm mature or it's it's actually in decline one final question yeah if you had ten thousand dollars and holiday seasons going and your boss said all right you know ten thousand per store you have the budget bob you know uh put that and invest in any promotion you know what would be the one thing that you would go for which gave you the highest roi guaranteed you've seen that that's proven money's come back you know okay so proven going in the Q1, 15 Q4. years, promotional, number one <clears throat> method. This is a bit of a cop-out. I'm going to give you two responses. Okay. If you're going into Q4, I mean, the most likely thing you, you'd go with is you'd say sparkling. Okay. But here, here, here's the downside to that. Within that category, you have, let's say you're talking specifically champagne. Your margins on things like Vouv Clicquot and Moet and things like that are generally going to be small, okay? Because it's a very competitive. It's it's in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. It's used as a promotion. You're going to get return in terms of turns. Mm -hmm. I mean that that's going to be something that people are going to be buying. It's mm -hmm. kind of a no-brainer, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, also, with us coming out of a year and a half of being in lockdown, mm -hmm. I think this year Q4. There's going to be a hell of a lot of sparkly bought because people are just going to think, celebrate. Their hey, we're getting back to some sort of normalcy, and I'm going to be with friends, and mm -hmm. it's going to be 
more celebratory than, than typical, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was going at marketing wise, like would you invest and put floor displays to like, where would you make racks or a newspaper ad or a TV ad? Where would you spend the 10,000? Not, not on the product ah, side. Okay. Which, which marketing box would tell you, you what I would do right now? I would, I would be hitting social media really hard. And look, if your customer base mm -hmm. is younger, mm -hmm. you know, you've got kind of the millennial group. I mean, there is social media that's very dialed into them. If it's maybe a little bit more of a mature clientele, then, you know, I mean, Facebook's still a beast. So something like that, I think, would be, would be, would makes a, a lot of sense. With a millennial shopper, more and more, they're not looking for recommendations from some critic. Do you get to decide this, where to spend money as a buyer for your things? In some companies, yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, for instance, when I was with, with Kohl's in Australia, completely different department that, that made those decisions. Wow, it's, <clears throat> you were responsible for buying, but not say, uh, advertising. It, there, there would be some input, okay. but that decision was, was not the buyers to make. So you can always say, I told you, or. <laughs> that doesn't go too far. I understand. Yeah. So great, Bob, thank you. Uh, amazing, you know, I, I think there's so much value here, so.